Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dose Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Dr. Tommy Wood from Nourish Balance Tribe and Physicians for Ancestral Health. Tommy is a senior fellow in the pediatrics department at the University of Washington and chief scientific officer of Nourish Balance Tribe, an online-based company using advanced biochemical testing to optimize performance in athletes. Tommy received a bachelor's degree in natural sciences and biochemistry from the University of Cambridge before studying medicine at the University of Oxford. He worked as a junior doctor in central London for two years after medical school and then moved to Norway to complete a PhD in physiology and neuroscience at the University of Oslo. In other words, Tommy is a winner. Tommy is currently the president of Physicians for Ancestral Health. He is the director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and the Icelandic Health Symposium and is on the scientific advisory board of Hinsta Performance. Tommy has also coached and competed in multiple sports, including rowing, crossfit, powerlifting, and ultra-endurance racing. Alongside his career in medicine and research, Tommy has published and spoken on multiple topics surrounding functional and ancestral approaches to health, including examining the root causes of multiple sclerosis and insulin resistance. On this episode, Tommy and I discussed Tommy's background. We discussed the difference between health and performance, 
I asked Tommy, can an individual still attain a high level of athletic performance and overall health? I asked Tommy about nutrition's role for fat loss, hypertrophy, sport performance and health and how it will differ between these goals. We discussed the importance of circadian biology in health optimization. We discussed the importance of peripheral circadian regulators such as meal timing, exercise and social interactions. We discussed mitochondria's role in health and disease. I asked Tommy if electrons from different foods go to different complexes inside the mitochondria. I asked Tommy if light increases metabolism. We discussed seasonal eating within an evolutionary framework. We discussed electromagnetic frequencies. I asked Tommy about physicians for ancestral health. I asked Tommy what is the best bang for book test to get an insight into someone's overall health status. I asked Tommy for his thoughts on spectrocell testing. I asked Tommy about fat fiber and hormy tea. I asked Tommy what have been the biggest lessons he has learned so far in his life. I asked Tommy how does he learn. Tommy shares with us his life advice. I asked Tommy if there's anything he does on a daily basis that is essential to his day. I asked Tommy for his top and current book recommendations. Tommy only had one year left on planet Earth. How would he spend that year and why? And finally, if Tommy could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an absolutely excellent episode with Tommy. And I know you're going to really, really enjoy it. All right, Dr. Tommy Wood, you absolute legend. Thank you so much for making time to come and speak with me today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's uh, sunny in Seattle. We just had a massive snowstorm a couple of weeks ago, so it's nice to see the sun again. Savage. Yeah, savage. the weather's actually been quite nice here in Ireland, even though it's a bit overcast today. But listen, we're two, 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 uh, two males from first world countries. We can't be having any complaints. <laughs> Absolutely not. Everywhere I've lived has always been a bit cloudy and a bit rainy so it doesn't really yeah, yeah yeah we'll get into that because i know you did your phd in norway so i'll be interested to see what see what the lifestyle is like there but uh, b- before i give your background i'll let you do that so uh, fill in the listeners in the background tommy yeah it's a it's a bit fun and varied i've um got to where i am today basically by whenever a good opportunity shows up going oh yeah that sounds interesting i'll do that um so i started with an undergraduate degree in biochemistry um and then towards the end of that i was going to do a master in biochemistry this is at cambridge and a friend of mine was like oh i think i might apply to medical school i was like yeah okay that sounds interesting i'll do that so i, I went to medical school and then i worked in, as in a, oxford in oxford yeah yeah as you do i just went from cambridge and then i just went to oxford you know yeah no big deal um <laughs> and yeah then i worked as a junior doctor in london for a couple of years and then towards the end then there's the there's the foundation training years so that's like before you specialize and then go and like figure out exactly what kind of doctor you want to be when you grow up um i was offered a phd in norway by a professor who i'd done some undergraduate work for in in a like a couple of summers when i was an undergrad and so she offered me a phd and i was like yeah okay that sounds interesting so i went to norway um and i this is a phd in neonatal neuroprotection it's basically looking at ways to heal the brains of babies that have some kind of problem around childbirth um, and kind of at the same time throughout that whole period from you know, particularly the second half of, of medical school um, and then through the end of my PhD uh, started to get really interested looking at 
um, performance nutrition, mainly for myself, but I was doing a lot of coaching, uh, mainly coaching rowing. That was my main sport when I was an undergrad and at med school and just looking at ways to try and improve performance in general. And then when I got into my uh, PhD, there's a chance to finally sort of sit down and spend some time digging through PubMed and, and all that kind of stuff. So on, on the side of my PhD, I started a blog, started a podcast, kind of talking about all of these various health things. Um, and then towards the end of my PhD, joined a company called Nourish Balance Thrive, which works with athletes to optimize their health and performance. So at the moment, I'm kind of split 50-50. I'm a uh, a research faculty, a research assistant professor at the, at the University of Washington. So I, again, look at babies' brains and ways to fix them, but also um, now doing some traumatic brain injury and concussion type stuff as well. We're going to start doing that. And then uh, at the same time, I work largely with athletic populations. So still through Nourish, Balance, Thrive, but also through some other consulting gigs. So I consult with most of the current um, uh, group of formula one drivers mainly on nutrition but also on uh, lifestyle stuff um and you know kind of working with with high performers at the same time as trying to figure out what it is that makes our brains uh, resilient and susceptible to injuries so kind of hopefully can develop a picture over the the whole lifespan of of what it is we need um to be healthy both for the body and the brain you're what we call a winner you're winning so you're winning yeah. at life. Yeah, I just went to, uh, went to Cambridge. I went to Oxford and uh, fucking legend. I was like reading. I was like, my God, this man's just winning. Uh, <laughs> tell me this. Did you row for both Oxford and Cambridge? No. So Ah, what, that would have been unreal. That would have been. So what, what you don't, I guess what you don't, I mean, I'm going to make excuses right now, just up front. Excuses being made. I, when, I was, when I was a kid, I was not into sports i didn't do any sport basically until i was like 18 yeah actually just tell me sorry to put in there your folks were like big into research weren't they you, yeah so they're, but you're they're from like academics. around the world you, you lived in loads of places yeah i i was born in the states my mum's icelandic my dad's british i've spent i've spent periods of time living in france and germany when they were on academic sabbatical <sighs> um but yeah so the, the the sport thing was not really my thing until i was like 18 and then i had a a crisis of confidence it was like i don't look very good naked therefore i should try and fix that and then became overly obsessed with appearance and food and trained too hard and ate too little and all that kind of stuff that an 18 year old boy i'm still did. in that crisis yeah and uh, <laughs> it took a long time to come out the other side of that but the long and the short of it is that while physiologically i probably am i'm quite good as an athlete particularly aerobically um for my size i'm not particularly strong but I have a good engine. Like I've done ultra endurance events. I could just go and go and go. Maybe not very quickly, but sort of the, the endurance is there. Um, but just the, the skill required to row for Oxford or Cambridge, most of the guys who come in, like you're rowing with Olympians and world champions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for like some kid who's only been doing exercise for two years to try and keep up with those guys, I just, I tried, but I was just wasn't good enough. Yeah. I was just, it, it, would have, it would have been some story. It'd be like someone you know, going from Liverpool to, to United or, well, more like Celtic to Rangers almost, something like that, you know. <laughs> but that would, have been, uh, that would have been something. So, man, there, there's so many topics we could talk about today. So uh, I do want to get into, you know, the difference between sport and health. Mm -hmm. I want to get your thoughts on, you know, circadian optimization. And I definitely want you to discuss mitochondrial health. Okay. Uh, and maybe how that links into like aging and longevity. So if we could hit those sport, health, 
circadian biology slash optimization and sort of mitochondrial health slash slash what am I saying slap slash optimization. So if, if if we hit those, I think we'd have a fairly you know productive podcast and it'd be a great right. discussion. And make sure too that we touch on things like physicians for ancestral health. Also, uh, <laughs> I love this uh, hormy tea. That uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I personally love the name. I was like, what do you nice. mean people don't like that name? Uh, Far fiber. You were touching that too. And obviously plug uh, um, Nurse Balance Drive, you know, so unbelievable website, unbelievable podcast, information's fucking outstanding. So health and performance, Tommy, uh, we were kind of joking before we hopped online there, you know, about this concept of health and performance. And it's a a topic I've been discussing at length with a few of my peers and colleagues in the field. But listen, the floor is yours. Take it over. When you hear this sort of, this topic of health versus performance, what comes to your mind? What sort of message would you like to put out to the masses? So I think it's, it's really important to think about the fact that what we are adapted to do in terms of performance is not what we currently do in the world of modern athletic performance. And that comes from a number of different standpoints. So you can look at that in terms of the number of calories that the bodies are that our body is used to expending. So they've looked at a wide range of hunter-gatherers and also Western populations. And on average, you know, male and female body size, something like that, two to 3,000 calories in terms of calories in and calories out. And this isn't a discussion on why that doesn't necessarily relate to weight gain and things like that, but that's just the, the, the amount of energy that our bodies are used to processing. And that... Um, comes from you know if we try and if we expend energy to do something then we adapt and we stop ourselves from expending energy elsewhere to try and keep that in balance when you then look at a modern athlete so particularly an endurance athlete it could be a rower right if we're, we're talking about my previous sport you know some of those guys definitely eating and expending upwards of six or seven thousand calories a day in terms of what the body is used to processing in terms of what the gut is used to used to processing, that, that's that's essentially double, and we can adapt to do that, but it's just not what we're des- designed in inverted commas to do. And when you look at exercise or movement and longevity, you know it's very you know we see that a certain amount of aerobic fitness is essential for longevity. We see that a certain amount of muscle mass and strength is essential for longevity, but you also see essentially a u-shaped curve or at least a plateauing of the benefits so once you get above 30 to 45 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity a day and this is scientific speak for anything basically more than brisk walking aerobic exercise uh, strength training and once you once you start to do more than that the, the the benefits plateau and particularly when it comes to chronic endurance exercise you start to see an uptick in terms of issues, particularly cardiac problems, um, mainly things like atrial fibrillation, basically scarring of uh, the atria of the heart, which, which means that they can't transfer uh, the beats properly and, and you basically have an irregular heartbeat. Not more serious arrhythmias that might kill you, but there's also a possibility that you might see an increase in cardiovascular mortality. Um, that's controversial for it. Like we can dig into all the different studies that show that. But the, the, the kind of the typical anecdote that you and I were, were, were joking about is, is the guy, 
who, you know, the type A personality, go-getter, he's a lawyer or he's a banker, he works in the city. Um, you know, he runs six to 10 miles every day in his lunch break and at 50 he drops dead and has a heart attack. And that's really not that uncommon. And everybody's like, oh, but he was so healthy, he did all this running. And there's only so much physiological stress that the body can take. And particularly when it comes to the way that amateur, amateur athletes train for endurance exercise. They think, I'm going to go out and I'm going to crush myself for an hour. Um, and what you do is you end up spending most of your time in what we call the gray zone, which is at or around lactate threshold and just continuously pu punishing yourself in that zone. And interestingly, when you look at a number of different endurance sports, the most successful athletes actually spend very little time at that intensity. They're either below that or above that. And so that zone is probably the most physiologically demanding and damaging for the body with, that, with, the, with the smallest performance gain on the other side. So there's, there's multiple different things here. If you do it properly and you're an athlete and you periodize your training properly, you polarize your training properly, then I think you can, you can push the system pretty hard. But the way that the average amateur particularly trains and then eats like shovels back gels and refined carbohydrates because they need to carbo load inverted commas for their next for their next performance um you know that's where we really start to see issues so that kind of attritional way to, of training spits 99 percent of people out the back and they end up you know sick or dead before they thought they would be because they're so healthy because of all the training they do so is there anywhere in there you want to like jump in and dig down or anything like that that's kind of like the, the broad level overview yeah just for the listeners we're here in zoom and i'm just nodding and smiling because I'm, <laughs> I'm agreeing with everything tommy says and tommy's probably like i'm doing all the talking here uh well you are the guest but uh a, a sort of follow-on question from that tommy is so is there a way that you know let's say listen i i love being an athlete like and i i love just uh, you know i love getting after it but at the same time, I still kind of would like to have a long and healthy life. So, yeah. like, is, is there a way that we can still be a savage, but do it in a way that isn't going to be as detrimental to our longevity? So, like, is there, is there certain strategies or protocols we could do, you know, um, to basically diminish the physiological cost that sport can take on, on someone's um, biology, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. And the important thing again to say up front is that there's a difference between the type of training you might do for somebody who wants both um, overall athletic performance and longevity versus something that's sport specific. So very important. Yeah. If, you're, if you're Chris Froome, doing bench press is going to be a really bad idea because you don't want to lug those pecs up the mountain. Um, but equally, if somebody were to look at him, you might say that guy is really fit, but he is not healthy, right? He does not have the muscle mass, the body type of somebody who's not going to fall over and break a hip when they're 65 years old. So when he leaves the world of professional um, mountain or sorry, uh, race, uh, bike racing, hopefully he will, you know, do some squats and, and put on a little bit more, uh, but a little bit more muscle mass, maybe or he'll, he'll have some, some carbohydrates. Um, so those two things, are, those two things are very different. Um, if you're thinking about the type of uh, balance of training that's going to be optimal if we can call it that and in reality we don't really know uh, but it's definitely a balance of aerobic and strength training both are very important in terms of aerobic uh, the majority of that will be you know low level 
um, math intensity kind of stuff if people are, are familiar with that. Um, and that can be brisk walking, cycling, on the airdyne, on the rowing machine, anything like that. And then some, some higher intensity sprints, you know, and maybe this makes up 50% of your training, um, 45 minutes to an hour a day, something like that. Um, and then the other side is, is, uh, is strength training because maintaining muscle mass, but particularly maintaining type two fast twitch muscle fibers are going to be really important both because of the, their metabolic capacity, but equally, you know, if, if I'm thinking 65, 70, 75 years old, those are the muscle fibers that you end up losing. And those are the muscle fibers, again, that are going to stop you falling and breaking your hip. And when you reach 75 years old, one of the biggest killers is falling and breaking your hip. So, you know, we kind of have to look at the, the, the whole picture and that kind of, that kind of um, you know, high intensity, if we want to call it resistance training, is going to be important. So that kind of, you know, seven to 10 hours a week is, is like more than enough. Um, and that kind of balance. And again, you know, you're going to get something like that. If you, if you look at the balance of, um, more modern strength and conditioning gyms, they'll look, you know, it will, it will look a lot like that. Um, CrossFit is very similar, although de depending on how they structure their, their Metcons and things, you end up spending a lot of time in that kind of gray zone, which is again, very physiologically stressful, but you're not going to get maximum adaptation. And you're also doing, um, highly complex movements when you're extremely fatigued. So there's kind of some uncertainty about whether that's a good idea. Um, and then the other side of that is that the more you increase your training loads, the more you have to look after yourself elsewhere. So sleep is incredibly important. Nutrition is incredibly important. Yeah. You know, let's start talking about circadian rhythm. That's incredibly, that's, that's incredibly important when you train, how that relates to, to your maximum capacities, but then also when that relates to uh, when the, the body might most benefit um, from movement. And again, there has to be some personalization there, but that's all very important. So it's just, you know, giving, giving enough of the inputs. And a lot of it is what we call, or we're trying to reduce mismatch. So if you were a hunter-gatherer out doing whatever it is that, that they need to do, all of these kind of movements, these kind of inputs, would just come from a normal part of your day. For us, we're going to spend most of our day sitting, doing whatever it is that uh, middle-class white men in the first world do. Um, and then at some point, you have to, give those those uh, physiological inputs and it's not ideal but it's you know is probably the best that, that most people can manage so so yeah yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned that because it reminds me of ben greenfield was on a he was on a podcast there recently maybe it was one he done with joe rogan but he basically said like exercise really should be an option but it's it's nearly not nowadays like it's almost mandatory because we're so sedentary but he's like exercise back you know just he's even just talking even in fairly modern times in terms of evolution was just an option he's like people would like have a good physical day where they were just like basically like you know oh it's just monday but they were so active you know doing yeah. whatever they had to do and he's like then if they had energy at the end of the day he's like ah oh, let's go out and do something fun do you know what i mean like and, you know they got their exercise in or they did some additional exercise and he was like he was basically like that's the way it should be but he's like now we actually have to have these artificial buildings where we go to to make sure that we actually get enough physical activity and by like this regimented exercise model but would yeah, exactly. you would you say tommy then uh what you're describing there is is basically polarized training you know so you want these acute high intensity hits but for the most part then at the other end of that spectrum you want the majority of your training to be sort of low level aerobic based yeah, exactly. So for the, for the, for the, particularly for the cardiovascular portion, 
the polarized training is is exactly the model that I'm describing. Yeah. 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 Um, I suppose actually it's funny. It only came to my mind. I can't believe that I didn't mention this at the start in the topics we're going to cover. It's probably because we're going to touch into it anyway. But then that's sort of talking about the training piece of you know, if you like, you know, health versus performance, um, and getting a little bit there, getting a little bit into longevity. What what about nutrition? You brought up a great point there, and it's something I often bring up with people in conversation too. Is that listen, like, and see, this is the thing too, Tommy. Right, and I like you to get your thoughts on this too. What's like I'm in the 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 sort of whole coaching and health and wellness professional field now for a decade about right and what 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 I kind of see over the de- the last decade was that people would take strategies or concepts from one domain and try and apply it to another and there'd be a mismatch. So how I explain that is like this: with nutrition, I say, listen, you're usually only eating for usually four things. I'm being very general here, and the four things would be you're either trying to gain muscle, you're either trying to lose fat. You're either eating for performance, like sports performance, or you're just eating for health and wellness, longevity. And what I would say is you don't want to take a strategy from one of those areas and apply it to another area. So, for instance, you saw there for for a while in CrossFit, when CrossFit first kind of came on the scene, like people were doing this like low-carb, really strict oh, yeah. paleo diet. And all the athletes were like, why am I fatigued? And it's like, I wonder why, because you're not taking in any carbs and everything you do is very glyc- or the demanding workouts are glycolytic based. Of course, there's a row of pieces, but you get what I mean, like the, yeah. the high intensity stuff. Um, and then what would happen then was that you were getting people who were coming from a very like health and wellness, autoimmune nutrition background, speaking to athletes going like, oh, you shouldn't eat uh, wine gums at half time. I mean, there's no nutrition. <laughs> then we're so unhealthy. And it's like, listen, listen, listen. If I have a 16-year-old kid and we're in the middle of a soccer match and it's half time and he needs a little bit of energy, like giving him wine gums is a very appropriate strategy. The problem with wine gums is they're really boring to chew. Like, yeah, yeah. But you, you get... You yeah. get where I'm going here, right? Yeah. Whereas, uh, um, so like that that individual is is trying to apply like the model from health, wellness, longevity, and put it into sport. And like what I would try to, and I used to be that person, but then what you realize is, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, modern day sport is not normal. No, it is abnormal. So you have to do abnormal things. Like Absolutely. you see athletes like. They have to eat multiple times a day because they have to get those calories in because they need to fuel that training. But that is not normal. Mm-hmm. So how I came to this was you, you said a great thing is that like the digestive tract having to like digest like six, 7,000 calories. Like to, to us as a species, like that's like, whoa, what the fuck is this? And I don't think people appreciate like how much work you're actually demanding of the digestive system. So nutrition is the next question I was going to ask there. So we spoke about the training piece and like how to optimize that or have a balance to it. So it's, you're still going to be fit. You're still going to be healthy, but it's, it's, and it should add to your longevity. What about this nutrition piece now? Like how, how should we look at that? So for a general population person, you know, they don't really need to be eating all these like calories or, or, or multiple times a day. They, you know, they probably just need that standard, you know, square meals, bit of fasting whereas if you're an athlete and you're training multiple times a day you're doing something abnormal so you will need to do abnormal things hence eating or, or toast eating lots of calories and, and like snacks and like multiple times a day so your thoughts on that yeah that's that, that's a really great point and the again it's important to distinguish you know if you want to perform in a, in a specific sport you should train the way that's you know to you should train for that sport and you should eat for that sport 
that is not necessarily going to be what's optimal for your long-term health and performance. Absolutely. But if that pays the bills or if that's something you love doing, then you just accept it, right? It's, it, you can't, unfortunately, can't always have it, have, have it both ways. And what we saw, it's been, because we've, we've spent so long talking about it, mate, I hope that we've made like a little dent. But for what we saw for a couple of years was high-intensity athletes, so um, CrossFitters, uh, obstacle course racers, and these guys are training two hours a day. Um, and at the same time, they're, they're hearing uh, Jeff Folek and, and Steve Finney talk about low-carb athletes and why that's best. And then they hear Jason Fung talking about why intermittent fasting is you know, essential for health. And then for a while, he's kind of rolled back on it. He's kind of disappeared into the woodwork. But Ron Rosedale was talking about why protein is going to give you cancer. Um, and then so they're eating no carbs with a very small eating window and low protein. Um, oh, and a lot of these guys came from an endurance background where they're scared of fat. So they're basically no calories in a very small feeding window, training two hours a day. And then they wonder why their hormones tank, like why their testosterone's in their boots and their thyroid isn't working. So like you just can't, you just can't do that. Um, however, like you say, if you're well, going, you, you can do it, but you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can do it, but if you, if you want to um, sleep well, reproduce or at least practice reproduction um you know have good mental health um you know all of that stuff is going to deteriorate pretty quickly i love that i gotta use that uh, practice reproduction <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it um so so yeah for, for the average for somebody who's just looking for you know health and hopefully longevity or at least um health span you know health healthy for as long as possible then you're right um, the most important thing to me personally is food quality. Um, I am, I, I have my preferences depending on the person in front of me, but I am pre pretty agnostic towards, um, carnivore versus keto versus paleo versus whole food plant-based diets. I think they're going to be di like different things for different people. And I've used all of those depending on the scenario in front of me, but what all of those have in common is that they have removed, um, refined carbohydrates they've removed plant-based oils which are just complete junk um you know and obviously the refined sugars and, and all that kind of stuff fuck and, you ansel keys <laughs> the um the what well, so there's this interesting story about how he tried to roll back on a lot of this and he was sort of like one of the first people to bring forward the mediterranean diet which again is just like a a whole like a real food mixed macronutrient diet which you know serves a lot of people fairly well um but the so so that's so quality is the most important thing because as soon as you start to process foods you divest the macronutrients from the micronutrients and you also divest the macronutrients from the body's response to them and you can take a simple food and as soon as you grind it up um you know you're going to have much larger spikes in glucose insulin um and that's the same for for um uh, both protein and and for carbohydrates and then when you start doing these weird things to to fats like whoever saw fat in corn and corn oil where does that where does that even come from like you think about the stuff that needs to be done and then when these things get into the body there's there's a whole sort of catastrophic you know downstream downstream events from there so the, the simplest way to to fix that is just eat high quality actual whole food um and once you're doing that, actually, a lot of the other things, you know, don't really matter. Um, you will probably um, get enough protein. You'll, you'll probably get enough calories. Uh, your calorie intake is probably going to come down automatically. So again, if you're trying to do this as an athlete, 
you have to work really hard to get all your carbohydrates from sweet potatoes. You have to work really, really hard, like several pounds of sweet potatoes a day. Again, if that's what you want to do, that's fine, but just appreciate that it's, it's not going to be easy. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I'd start. Um, we do a lot of, uh, or I do a lot of manipulation of the individual food groups, individual macronutrients, again, usually in diseased populations. Um, but for most people, just like eat real food and then you can stop worrying about it. Yeah, big time, big time. All right, circadian biology. It seems to be coming more and more of a topic that people are becoming aware of. It's funny, I remember like back in 2010, I was telling people about blue light and they're all like, shut up, you fucking wacko. What are you talking about telling me that this is ruining me? And like now, now like most lay people, now like most lay people, they're all like, oh yeah, looking at your screen, I hear that's bad for you. And like it was so funny with that Matthew Walker podcast came out at Rogan, like I was getting all my mates going, did you hear about this guy on Rogan talking about sleep? And it's like, he was like eight hours and it's like, it was like you, you know, it's like sleep's amazing. And I was like, yeah, how about that? How about it? Yeah. I've been <laughs> preaching that for years, you mad thing. Um, but when you, you know, when you hear the term, you know, circadian biology, circadian rhythms, circadian optimization, what comes to your mind and uh, just fill us in on your whole thought process there. Yeah, it's, I think it's actually surprisingly simple. The, what the, it's fascinating in terms of, you know, if we think about individual biochemical pathways, individual genes, you know, how we might process nutrients or, you know, move electrons throughout the cell, which is essentially what the cell is, is there to do. You know, all of that is, is, is controlled by circadian biology. And we could, like, you can dig into that and it's super, it's, it's super interesting, but none of that's necessarily that useful. Like the useful thing is you need two things. You need light when it's light and you need darkness when it's dark. And like, literally, that's it. Um, and so the problem is that we don't really get either. So today, it would be very easy for me to spend my entire day inside, um, even though it's nice and sunny outside here in Seattle, uh, I will make sure I go out on my deck and get my photons in my eyes as soon as we finish talking. Do you go, um, do you go full buff naked like Jack Cruz? No, sadly not, because the neighbors would complain. <laughs> um, and, but th- so this, when, if, if I were just to spend my entire day in my office, uh, which would be very easy, I may be getting 200 lux, maybe 300 lux of light right now. I do have a window. Um, but we probably need at least one to 2,000 lux. Um, and you can measure this on your phone. Uh, you can get, there are apps, free apps that can, that can measure the number of lux you're being exposed to. And we probably need that for about 20 minutes. Um, again, early-ish in the day, 9 to 10 a.m. Or, you know, and you, you know, it, it's always going to different based difference based on your latitude and the time of year and all that kind of stuff but that's that's roughly what we need and if you live in the high north in um uh you know in the middle of winter and it's dark all the time like my family in iceland and if you are susceptible uh to that absence of light jack cruz will tell you to move to new orleans but you can manipulate it with light boxes and the such um so you need to get that light during the daytime that's probably when you're also going to be the most uh, receptive to both exercise and food. Um, so again, one, if, if you're trying to figure out how to time your food with circadian rhythm, just eat when it's light outside, don't eat when it's dark outside. Um, and again, really, really simple way to do that. Um, so that's, that's really important. And the more light that you're exposed to during the day, the more protected you are against light at night. Uh, actually. So mm-hmm. like the two go hand in hand. Then at the same time, when it's nighttime, 
blue light through the eyes, suppressing melatonin production. That's why you're putting on your blue blockers right now. Um, uh, those are your, your day walkers, it looks like. Um, these, my the, these are my bono glasses. <laughs> um, and and then, then it's equally going to be um, everything that, you know, light shining in the bedroom, the bedroom window from the streetlights outside. Um, we have an alarm clock, but the LEDs are red, so I'm not too worried about that. Again, it's going to be the type and the quality Sweet. of the light that you, that you, that you have in, in your bedroom. Um, and you, you need both of those things for an optimal circadian rhythm. If you can get a good amount of light when it's light outside and proper darkness when it's dark, all of the other stuff uh, starts to take care of itself. Can you touch on your toss then just around, you know, central versus peripheral regulators? And like, can you maybe touch on your thoughts too on, you know, mealtime? And you sort of touched on it there, but there, there does seem to be not a little bit of debate. I had a good discussion with, with, with Greg Potter about this, about, you know, the mealtime and, I, you know, concept, you know, that you kind of want to get your calories in during the day. And there's some research on that, you know, when groups get more of their calories in during the day, they seem to have more favorable um you know, weight uh, profiles and body composition profiles. But like my sort of, my sort of little bit of rebuttal to Greg there was that, listen, like, like, because I think he was saying that one group gained more weight than the other and they were both isocaloric, you know, and whatever the fuck that means. I mean, can you ever really truly track if someone's isocaloric? No. Um, but like, because I, like, if I was still under my caloric needs and I had all my calories at the nighttime, I'd still be under my caloric needs. Now, he did actually answer that well, and I only read a paper that made it click for me as well. It's like, it's basically what the paper says is, you could eat the same caloric content of a meal at a different time of day, and it's just to your biology, you metabolize it differently. So it's basically they were saying that you could eat a meal... And like, and I'm just just gonna be very gentle here. This you could eat this meal at say 1 p.m. and it's light out, and that meal went in, and your body metabolized all that, and basically like saw that as a deficit. You're still in a deficit of energy, but you could have ate that same meal later on and not have metabolized as much of it, and it could start contributing to you being getting into a surplus now. So it was the same food. It was just that the metabolic processing was different because of the time of day you took it. And I was like, ah, now that's starting to make sense to me. But I just want to get your thoughts, Sue, then on peripheral uh, factors so like meal timing social interactions another one and exercise you know what are your top processes on that with some people because most people will just turn around and say well that's all great but like you know because of the social constructs we have today like that's just not feasible for some people like well like say like you know most sports teams most guys are going to choose the Thursday evenings with their sports team at 7 p.m to you know yeah. get their soccer train or rugby train or get a games training in and it's under bright lights and is there any way to offset that detriment um, and they're also getting their meals in, in and like, cause I, I've worked with teams who tell me they're eating their meals in at 9 PM at night after training and they're getting up at 6 AM in the following morning for work. And yeah. 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 And that's, so the, I mean, there's multiple things to, to unpack there. I, I think absolutely depending on when you eat a meal, the body is going to respond differently because of the circadian regulation of the hormones and then also the cellular components that deal with those with those calories so if you look at say again mouse studies not ideal but early in the feed early in the feeding window so it's when they're nocturnal you have an upregulation of um the, the metabolic uh, components that are going to better deal with carbohydrate metabolism um, and then that's those start to down regulate you know mm -hmm. towards the end towards the end of the night and then during the you know in, you know during the daytime which is when they're asleep yeah. so then you also have 
uh, something that's maybe more tangible for for us is that melatonin su- suppresses or interferes with insulin re- release from the pancreas and obviously insulin really important for not for disposing of glucose in the blood that's what we're told that's that's like the last it's like the bottom of the list of what insulin does Damn uh, you gary tubs <laughs> but mainly mainly for for regulating a glucose production by the liver and then also uh, the availability of gluconeogenic precursors from like preventing the breakdown of muscle tissue and fat so that they're not turned into glucose in the liver basically um but to, Tommy, can I say, can I just jump in there real quick? But yeah. now, now, okay, that that th- that's all savage information, uh, really good information. But are we still just looking at that in isolation? So, like, what about if you just exercised? And now, because exercise upregulates insulin sensitivity. So, like, is there? What I'm trying to say is, is there an offset? So, let's like, say, like, you did exercise at nighttime. So, like, 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 kind of what happens with a lot of things is that we we do take things in a, a bit of isolation. So let's say, right, you, you did train at 7 p.m. at night and it was under like these mad artificial lights, right? It's not ideal. Like you would think like from a long dairy standpoint because it's such an environmental mismatch, mismatch, it's not ideal. But what about then there's a social interaction and you have a great endorphin release off that. Is there, you know, is there a cancelling effect to some degree of the detriment of the exercise at night, the light, the food intake at a, at a not an optimal time you know is there like is it like this is the, it's kind of like a question i always ask people is like what is true health like because you know what i mean because people are like oh well i'm not gonna go socialize tonight because i have to be in bed at 9 p.m for my circadian rhythm it's like or would be would be would be around loved ones and socializing does that counteract because one thing you can say about a mouse study is mouse don't have the ability to like have the cognitive processes that we have you know what i mean in terms of like yeah. You know, like Although they do, they do die faster when you socialize isolate them, just like humans do. Just but like, I'm saying, like you know, with belief models, like you know, like biology belief models and stuff like that, yeah. and changing your 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 biology with beliefs. But sorry, just uh, peel that back a little bit. Just going back there, like, is there anything to say that if you exercise or if you did some other type of mechanism, would would it have a counterbalancing effect? Yeah. So I'll. I'll kind of pretend that I was in the middle of the story and I was going to get there anyway and you interrupted oh. me with a question, which is fine. You ignorant um, bastard. <laughs> the, um, so the, I guess the, the exercise of the insulin sensitivity thing is, is interesting because um, in reality, you, you shouldn't be using insulin to dispose of glucose anyway. So whether exercise makes you insulin sensitive, um, yes, that's great if you're in a, if you're in a caloric surplus and you eat a load of crap food, then you can use exercise to offset some of that. But that's not how you, how you should be doing it. Um, but your your point is is a great one, right? If you're um, you know, there's if you're going to spend all day sitting, and then the only movement you're going to get is when you go out and you play uh, football or rugby with your mates, um, you know, local team on a on a Tuesday night or Thursday night um, under bright lights, and then you're going to have your last meal at nine or 10 p.m. and then you're going to get up for work the next day at 6 a.m. Like there's a whole load of stuff there that's putting you out of sync um, with what the normal circadian rhythm should be. So the the central clocks, super charismatic nucleus in the brain, largely driven by light exposure. uh, And then the, sorry, the peripheral clocks, central clocks, eye in the liver, largely driven by when you eat food. The eye, and then the central clocks become more important when your light exposure is out of sync. Um, And the the problem is that when you when you when you do that basically all of that's out of sync right your light exposure is out of sync with when you eat um and you know your exercise is messing with your body temperature and all that kind of stuff um in reality we don't know 
that that's it's just as simple as that i would say that if you look at the hierarchy of things that affect health circadian biology is probably going to be somewhere like it's probably top right but you are protected against so many things if you have a strong social network and you have high quality social relationships so if those are built around the sport that you play absolutely keep doing them it's also important to remember that we're going to be each person is going to be differently um, affected by these things so if somebody comes to me and they're a complete mess and i can see straight away that their circadian like their circadian inputs are completely out of place and completely misaligned that's a, a big place to start working um however if you're somebody and you're truly in great shape and you feel good um should you be worrying about the late night football game on a thursday probably not so it, it, it's really difficult um yeah yeah and, and, and it's, it's basically just going to come down to the person in front of you. So for some people, that's, you know, you really need to fix this stuff and it makes a huge difference. For others, you know, just like, you know, there are plenty of centenarians who uh, smoke and drink like sailors and then they live to 120 years old. And yeah. they've, done every, they've done everything wrong, if you want to call it that. But they have all these other things that, well, they have probably a good number of genetic mutations that are beneficial, but also social relationships. They're probably getting, you know, reasonable light exposure, all that kind of stuff. So... You know, it's, it's really difficult to balance it all out. Like, another thing, uh, uh, and again, I, I, I really do want you to, to, to add your piece to this too, is that, like, ignorance is bliss in a way because you probably know someone in your life or a few people in your life where you meet these people, right? And they're just winning at everything they do. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, Tommy, right, they, they seem to do, like, everything or go against everything, like, that we've been told. You know what I mean? Like, they don't go to a gym. They, 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 they're not neurotic about their diet. Uh, but if you look at them right, they're always happy. They're in fairly good physical shape. They, they walk everywhere. They cycle. They hike at the weekends. They garden. They're very involved in the community. They're extremely loving, extremely giving, always just happy just to be happy. They just have this. It's like when you meet these people, like, they just they get it. What is yeah. it that they have? And you just meet these people. And like, but what I mean by ignorance is bliss is that like, they don't know about the artificial light or like, and they know what, they have an idea of what good nutrition is, but they still have a cup of tea and a biscuit, but the most part of their diet's good. But they're just like, fun, like you love being around these people as well. Like, you're like they're just, that guy is all so happy. I just, and it's just like, that's what I'm saying about we don't take kind of these things, like that sort of like that mindset that almost like that, again, that biology belief type thing that like, you know, well, if you truly believe in something, if you believe that that's going to harm you, more than likely it will. Whereas if you don't, oh, yeah. it probably won't. Like, and that's what I'm saying. That's that's one missing issue with like the mouse or any animal studies. Because again, like no fucking zebra, like the kind of, you know, the white zebras don't get ulcers by Sapolsky or like no rats going like, Jesus, better pay that mortgage bill by the end of the month. You know, that kind of way. Like that's not affecting their physiology. You know what I mean? To a certain degree. So it's just, yeah, we, 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 you know, science still is, we still need to do science, but so much of it is done in isolation. We're always trying to get rid of those variables because, you know, we, we're going to take away those, those, um, those, co- those compounding factors. Like this, um, this is the, uh, th- that's the reason why the more time I do, like I've done all the fancy data, read all the, the fancy papers, but the more time I do this, the more I am certain that the, like the evolutionary ancestral health model is, is the one that makes the most sense. It's the one that we know works and it's yeah. super low risk. And it's basically, what, what do you need? You need movement. You need sleep. You need light when it's light outside, dark when it's dark outside, and you need so and you need social relationships. And I know all of that works to improve your health. And then like the rest of the stuff doesn't. I mean, it's interesting, but it doesn't really it doesn't really matter that much. 
I'm turning on. I'm turning on all artificial light there in the corner now as we speak. It's a lamp, but I have the blue blockers on. People, don't be worrying. Don't be worrying about Tyler and I'll tell me meals. Um, mitochondria. I'm fucking fascinated with mitochondria. You know, just through Doug Wallace's work, who is on STEM Talk. You were on STEM Talk. This is your STEM Talk podcast. Today. Very, very good. The only so, two parter they had done because it went on. The so first two parter, yeah. Well, the first as well. Have they done? Have they done two parter since? I haven't. I haven't heard. But uh, that, that was the first one anyway, if, the, if, it's, if it's not the only one. But um, Doug Wallace, you know, was doing savage work with mitochondria. Apparently, he was the man who discovered it. We inherited all the mitochondria from, from the mammy. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, you know, Jack Cruz's work is phenomenal. Now, listen, I, I've had Jack on. I spoke to people about Jack. I, I, you know, I, when I had Jack on, I was like, Jack, you know, a lot of people don't like the way you put your message out there. Your information is great. And, you know, it is what it is. I think I think he's, he's does savage work. Uh, could he put his message out in a bit of a nicer way? Yeah. <laughs> but his information is still very good. Uh, he's a wacky bastard, but, like, he's... he's I, I fucking think he's great. But uh, mitochondria. So when you hear mitochondria, what comes to your mind? Give us a spiel. Yeah. Um, I... I very much have a, a mitochondria-centric view of my world, and that's both the, with the general health and performance uh, side of things, and then also that's what really interests me in, in the brain injury field, and that's where I focus a lot of my mm. research efforts, or increasingly where I can do the mechanistic side of things. Um, and it's really interesting, and you're right. The, the, so, so if you take Doug Wallace's work, which is incredible and should probably... Um, Nobel Prize. He'll probably get a Nobel Prize. Yeah, he should do. Um, And it should inform most of the way we think about these things. When others translate that or make it more complicated for public consumption, we just throw around words like heteroplasmy and haplogroup, and it makes us sound super smart. Um, But in reality, I don't think that's very helpful. And again, um, there are several papers by Doug that people can and should read describing the movement of different different haplogroups uh, during evolution to the different environments that we that we um, evolved in, and again, that kind of is either protective from a lifestyle standpoint. So, uh, some of the Scandinavian, Northern European haplogroups, we are protected against caloric overload because we are more uncoupled. So, if I shove a load of food in my face, my body is more likely to just disseminate that as heat compared to somebody who has a more um, African Sahara, you know. Uh, sort of sub-Saharan African kind of haplogroup where they are very tightly coupled. That's just, just, sorry, just for the listeners, explain what you mean there by coupled. Yeah, that's a great point. So it's basically how efficient your mitochondria are at moving electrons through the electron transport chain. So when you put energy into your mouth or you know wherever your energy is coming from, either comes through glycolysis or if you're coming through beta oxidation of fats, ends up in the mitochondria you are producing reducing equivalents. It's basically um, NADH or FADH2. It's just, it's just the movement of electrons. How good are your mitochondria at moving those electrons through the, the proteins and then putting them on oxygen and then at the same time generating ATP by moving protons? Um, so how good are you at doing that? And the Northern European haplogroups, particularly because they spent a long time in cold places, that... Um, process is less efficient and when you do that you generate a lot of heat so that's probably what kept them alive when it was very cold outside in the winters now that is also beneficial when you're shoving too many calories into the system because you can also disseminate those and you're less likely because the problem is that if you put too many 
um, electrons into the system and they're not coming out the other side, the other place that they can go is to creating reactive oxygen species, free radicals, mm -hmm. which then can damage mitochondrial DNA. And that's when we start to see heteroplasmy and, you know, all those different, you know, downstream, you know, aging and senescence of cells. Um, so if you have an inefficient mitochondria, you are uncoupled, you are, you can disseminate some, some of that as heat. And then you are less, you are producing fewer reactive oxygen species compared to somebody who's tightly coupled. And we see a lot of this in terms of how much say fat a person can gain and still maintain metabolic health. Caucasians, we can get really fat and still be in pretty good shape. People from certain Asian populations and African populations cannot. They get sicker faster and they cannot, they just can't deal with that overload of calories. However, it makes them better athletes in many sports because they are more efficient at producing energy or ATP for a given amount of energy that goes into the system. Um, so that's, that's one part of it. Um, I'm lucky because, well, in, in one respect, because I come from a Northern European heritage. So I'm, m you know, more protected against some of the issues associated with a sedentary Western lifestyle. But, you know, I'll never be a great endurance runner. Um, so that's kind of, that's one big, that's one big part of it. Um, so when you were trying to think about how we maintain, so, you know, the, the word that people use is heteroplasmy, which is basically the, the um, Mitochondria in a given cell have different mitochondrial mutations. Um, so everybody has mitochondrial mutations. It's just like DNA. We all have polymorphisms. But it's when the different mitochondria in the cell or in the body have different mutations because those mutations are new because of new damage, uh, which mainly comes from reactive oxygen species. Um, so how do we... And the problem is that in cells that have finished dividing we seem to somehow select for the mitochondria that are junkier in general. They seem to accumulate. Um, so we want to try and minimize the damage that's done up front so that, so that doesn't happen because then those cells become senescent. Um, that's a big thing in, um, in the, the anti-aging field. Senescent cells, they're basically cells. They exist there, but they're not really doing anything other than just being inflammatory and, and, and basically cause, causing havoc. So trying to get rid of sen senescent cells is one of the sort of current frontiers of anti-aging medicine mm, mm. um but so that so then the important things that we need to make sure that our mitochondria function properly and we're not putting electrons where we don't want them to be uh, is avoiding caloric overload so don't eat a western diet where it's really easy to overeat processed food um don't be sedentary because you want to maintain flux through the system and one of the ways to do that is by increasing energy output on the other side and again that doesn't need to be huge amounts of exercise it's just yeah. making sure that things are continuing aerobic exercise is also very good at upregulating autophagy autophagy is something that everybody talks about when it comes to fasting basically if you don't um, eat for a long period of time the body starts to eat itself that's the simple way to to talk about it and sleep usually is, sleep as well isn't it yeah, and, well, budget, yeah. yeah sleep, sleep with a period of fasting. Yeah, yeah both come, come at the same time. Um, but aerobic exercise is the fastest way to upregulate autophagy pathways. So when people are talking about extended fasts, do you need to do them if you're doing regular aerobic exercise? I don't know, actually, um, because it may well be that aerobic exercise is giving, you most of that, is giving you most of that benefit, so you don't need to starve yourself for a week. Maybe there is something to fast the cardio. Yeah. Um, you know, get the best of both worlds. Well, actually, the one, the one paper that um, I believe, I haven't seen others that have studied this, 
they fasted people for 36 hours in the muscle cells at least when they did muscle biopsies they didn't see upregulation of autophagy pathways but if those guys just did exercise straight away they saw an immediate increase so wow fasting overnight and exercising the next morning maybe that fast isn't necessary and you'll still get those benefits uh, and tommy t- t- tell me this i heard you say on the stem talk uh, conversation that you had mm-hmm. um that fasting i have it me notes here fasting and sleep uh, there was it was there an upregulation of nad yeah so that's that's part of that's part of the system that was next on the notes in front of me again you can just keep on jumping the gun robbie um well, that's, I'm going to pretend that anyway. But yeah, so the um, NAD is something, again, that people are really interested in in the longevity space. People are taking nicotinamide riboside to increase their cellular NAD. Yeah. And it's, it's, NAD is really important because, like we talked about earlier, the way you transfer your, your electrons into your mitochondria, you need NAD to do that. Um, and, but you also need the NAD that doesn't have electrons attached um, to activate all kinds of genetic pathways that are associated with longevity and stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah. That is, it's super important to have enough of it, but also to have enough that, that isn't bound to electrons. To, and there's, so then the flux thing is really important. So you need mitochondria that are willing to take the electrons off it, and then you also need to be making enough of the NAD and also not getting rid of it. So it seems to reduce in chronic stress, chronic inflammation, um, but also the enzymes that recycle NAD that sort of reproduce it um, from, from other downstream um, metabolites are upregulated at night. So having proper sleep when it's dark is going to better regenerate your NAD. So when people start talking to me about taking NAD supplements for longevity, I'm like, hang on a second. There's a whole host of stuff you can do. Um, identify um, inflammatory stresses, identify other chronic stresses, um, make sure you have a robust circadian rhythm. Make sure your mitochondria are functioning properly. All of that will make sure that your NAD is in good shape, and you don't need to take a, you don't need to take an expensive pill. Um, but that's obviously a much less exciting answer. Mm. Tell me this: Do you know if electrons from different foods go through the different uh, cytochrome proteins? Um, so most most people would tell you no. Uh, some people would tell you yes. Um, I generally think of them as interchangeable. Um, I hope that may change in the future. Yeah. And can you tell me this too? Except, oh, sorry, except for um, when you beat-oxidize fats, um, you have a difference in, in terms of where the electrons enter versus co- in complex one versus complex two. Okay. Via uh, NADH or FADH2. I was about um, to say, I think Brian Walsh said that in his course. See, I think is it NAD goes in through one and FAD goes through yeah, two? That, through two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so that yeah, the, that so then that, if we're talking about it that way, then that's very different. And actually, the ratio of so the, the saturation of the fat changes where whether the electrons go more through NADH or FADH two, and that then also affects uh, reactive oxygen species production and sort of affects signaling back to, to insulin sensitivity. So the types of fats affecting the balance of where those electrons come from, mm. you know, affects insulin sensitivities. So that is very important as well. Yeah. Should have said that. And what about light exposure then? Because, you know, obviously then like extended light exposure, like say in a summer month, like say more of a Northern latitude to like winter, like obviously there's something going on there with, with light and you know, how electrons are functioning at the mitochondria. I think someone said that, Dan Pardy said that, there's research saying that you're more efficient 
at utilizing calories at summer than they are winter because of the light exposure or something that could be absolutely horseshit but i don't know if i'm off on that no i mean that's 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 essentially right and it's again to do with light affecting uh, a number of things including melatonin which affects um ability to process carbohydrates and would it be the drive to eat too you know because obviously if you're under more light spectrum your body's like hot summer and then you know you have more this drive to go look for food like so the way that most populations worked if you think about it is that during the summer months uh light you know it's a long light cycle there is readily available plant-based carbohydrates Mm. Um, so you have an increased drive to eat you have an increase of availability of um carbohydrate based calories um in some of doug Doug wallace's work he says that the high the higher insulin uh, caused by those actually makes your mitochondria less efficient um and the purpose of that, um, or it, it, the purpose of that being that you're more likely to store calories from fat. Yeah, it was a pre-hibernation state is what some people yeah. predicted. So the idea is that you eat all summer, you get fat, because in the winter, those calories aren't around. And then um, in, in the winter, you, um, you know, insulin falls, carbohydrate intake falls, um, in, you increase your antioxidant defenses in your mitochondria. Um, you obviously have longer, peri- longer periods of fasting. You might be in a period of ketosis. And then the whole cycle begins again. Nobody is doing that anymore. What and about that the, could be really important. What about the 12 hour? What about the places closer to the equator where they don't have summer and winter? They, but they do have like, you know, wet and dry seasons. But they, they didn't have those cycles. And also, what about like the really northern tips where they have like 24 and 24? Yeah. So... That I think in the really northern tips, those um, those swings are going to be the most severe, and that may be again what your. So, I think a lot of we what we need to end up doing before we really figured out all the mechanisms is think, okay, what do my mitochondria, what do my genetics expect, and try and replicate that as much as yeah, possible. Yeah. So, um, again, for me, for a you know a northern European what maybe I should be doing is only eating carbohydrates in the summer mm. in Iceland, you know, in the middle of the summer, there's almost, there's no darkness. Um, and you know, that's, that's maybe when I should you know, rather than getting beach ready, I should be, you know, piling on the fat. Yeah. And then in the winter, I'll have far fewer calories, mainly protein and, um, fat based. I'll definitely spend some periods in ketosis. You know, there'll be some, some types of fast, you know, some periods of fasting when there wasn't any food available. That's probably what my genetics and my mitochondria expect. If you're somebody who, um, you know, your most recent ancestors um, spent a lot of time in Central America, where, like you say, there's a 12-12 light-dark cycle, maybe, maybe you need a lot less of that. So mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, thinking back to where are, you know, and it's, nowadays it's still pretty obvious where our most recent genetics, you know, came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then I think that's a good way to start informing how we then, how we then start to think about those things. Yeah, it's, it's similar to, 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 to where I'm currently at my top processes. Normandy, baby. That's where I came from. <laughs> the, the burka. Apparently the Normans became more Irish than Irish themselves. Um, uh, tell me this now as well. Electric magnetic frequencies, your thoughts. Yeah. Um, this is, I, I, did a, I did a podcast on this and we got a lot of backlash on it. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Oh, where, 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 where people saying you're full of woo. I love him. People go, oh, he's full of woo now. I, that Tommy Wood guy used to be so like science. Now he's all gone woo. So um, I don't think it was that. I think it was the, I think it was the guest that was chosen to do it. 
Okay. And I'll just say the, the guest offered themselves up and I was like, yeah, okay, why not? Um, there are multiple researchers and quite credible people doing research in this field um, who I could have interviewed and then maybe that would have made it a little bit less controversial. So there, there, are, there are some problems with this. Um, and the, the problem, I, I, I'm sure that this is, I'm sure it's a thing, right? Um, it's been studied mechanistically in the lab. If you go from first principles, it would also make sense why this is a thing. However, I have absolutely no idea how much I should be worrying about it. Mm. And, the real, and the reason why there's, I have no idea how much I should be worrying about it is because there's no, there's no way to test it, truly. There is no control group. We are all exposed by, uh, by a huge amount. Wi-Fi, um, mobile phone towers, it's everywhere. And the problem is that if everybody's exposed at the same time, you have no control group to compare it to yeah, in reality. Yeah. Um, and so you can do stuff in the lab, but when I'm doing, when I'm doing experiments in the lab, if I wanted to look at this, there's Wi-Fi piped through my whole building, right? Yeah. I cannot eliminate these exposures from the, like, even if I wanted to. So um, we can talk about the mechanisms that might be underlying it. We can talk about, you know, what it is that's interesting about it. In reality, um, I think there are some people who worry about it a lot more than they need to. I also think there are some people who don't worry about it at all when, you know, this is, this will be a biological phenomenon. The problem is we just don't know how to measure it and we don't know the extent of, it may not be a problem. It may cause something, but in reality, compared to all the other things we talked about, food, movement, circadian rhythm, maybe it doesn't matter. It's, that's yeah. certainly possible too. Yeah, it's so fucking hard to know, man. I mean, you know, it, it reminds me of Joseph Shilton Pierce fabulous author his writings had a huge influence on me but he would often talk about like your brain is your intellect and your heart's your intelligence and the brain yeah. always goes with the question can this be done and that's it <laughs> but whereas it never listens to a follow-up question where the heart goes should this be done yeah you know and i think that's a bit a little bit where we are at the wi-fi it's kind of like you know, yeah, we can do all this, but we still really don't know like what ramifications are in this. And then going off what we spoke about earlier on, like I every time I, I speak about something like this, I always get Ben House in my head just going like, and what? And what am I going to do? So what? I'm still, he's like, <laughs> yeah. well, like, you want me to just be in a corner afraid, shivering? Like he didn't say that now, but that's it. Ben's just like, just be a fucking savage. And then like, there's a part of me that like when Ben gets it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you fucking tell it, Ben Helms. You tell it. <laughs> fucking, I love that guy. But, uh, oh, we, no, we, we but, should, we, quick, in, quick, uh, quick, because you mentioned Ben House, like one of my favorite people in the whole, whole world. He's a fucking yeah. legend. I was I was with him in Costa Rica. Yeah, you lucky fucking bastard! I was yeah, just and yeah, doing doing a squat workout with Ben House is quite the experience. Oh, um, and then he was also my personal hero. I was bitten by a, a venomous snake in Costa Rica, and he essentially saved my life. So did, why did he piss on it? <laughs> no, he took me to, he took me to hospital and translated as they filled me with <laughs> anti venom and antibiotics. Um, um, but, but what were we going to say? Yeah. So so before we go more into this. The way that I think about all of the things that we've talked about is control the things that you are able to and willing to control. Yeah, yeah. Beyond that, stop fucking worrying about it because the worry is going to be more of a problem than. And so, like, if 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 this is important to you and you are able and willing to control it, and it's and you can do that, great. Beyond that, why why should I worry about somebody else's Wi-Fi next door when I there's, there's literally nothing yeah. I can do about it. Yeah. So so like absolutely approach everything that we've talked about approach it like that 
Tommy, there's a saying I love, and it's, if you can control it, you don't need to worry about it. And if you can't control it, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> so none of it requires worry. I exactly. Think that's that's yeah. important. Yeah. Summary. Listen, uh, this is savage, man. I could speak to you fucking all day, but we, we're, we're both on time. Time limits here in respect of your time. I had you booked in till the half, but if you need to... Your stand, do you need to take a piss or do you need to give your knees no, a break? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. Um, just for the listeners, Tommy's up there standing like a good thing. Um, I know from teaching when I stand on my knees, just to get a bit achy. Tell me this. Um, I was going to ask you... Oh, yes. Physicians for Ancestral Health. Tell me how this started and what it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a society that started, I mean, probably the best part of a decade ago, seven or eight years ago. Um, and the idea is... So it's an international group for physicians doctors so um in the uk it's very and in ireland it's very easy to know what a doctor is you went to medical school and you're a doctor in the u.s everybody's a fucking doctor um so we have to separate it out if you have a a do or an md is 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 what counts in the u.s and there's a specific reason for that we've gotten again some backlash for this is because in those um professions in the, in the medical profession, if you start talking about all this kind of stuff, generally people will look at you like you're completely nuts. So, however, that is changing, which is great. But mm. the idea is that it's a, a, a safe place for crazy doctors like me to turn up and say, hang on a second, maybe light is important for our health or maybe food is important for our health. Maybe cholesterol isn't the reason maybe, why people's hearts are blown up. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I shouldn't worry about bringing down my LDL by 50, by 50 points or, you know, in American money. Um, yeah, so that's what we focus on. Um, and we have a meeting once a year where everybody gets together and talks about this stuff. And like some, some of my colleagues are completely bonkers and they turn up and they talk about stuff that is, you know, a bit wacky, but it's supposed to be a safe space where we can all explore this stuff and you learn something every year. So if you're a doctor and, and what's interesting is, is every year we get new members and they turn up and they're like, oh my God, I thought I was the only person who, t- who mm-hmm. thought like this and you are not alone. So that's, that's the idea is it's a place for doctors who are all a bit crazy and think that the evolutionary model might be important for health. You know, like the, the uh, environments that we evolved in may have something to do with the chronic disease problems that we have now. Um, if you're into that kind of thing. Physicians for Ancestral Health is the, is the place for you. And I'm president currently, and I will be for the, for, uh, the rest of the year. And then my good friend, Josh Turknet, who you should also have on your podcast. He's amazing. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll take over. Yeah. So that's, that's what it is. So no, no more four more years. Four more years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. is, does, does Malcolm Kendrick go tell you that shit, does he? Um, that no, bloke, he that bloke's actually. a fucking legend. Do you ever he's, see what he gets into me? He's no tolerance for bullshit. I love it. He's, I mean, I mean, his blog, like if you, and like, I, I do have a, I do have a little bit of respect and interest in the lipid mo- model only as, you know, at the level of say Peter Tia, Thomas Day Spring kind of thing, because it's a, like, if you're going to do whatever you can to minimize disease risk, you can play with that system a little bit and maybe yeah. reduce your system a little bit, little bit without reduce your risk a little bit without, you know, basically any side effects, but mm-hmm. it requires a lot of data and it's really hard. And so, but if you're talking general population, heart disease risk, 
read Malcolm Kendrick's blog, like, and then, and also listen to Chris on the MBT podcast interview, Malcolm Kendrick. It's like two hours of him just talking about cholesterol is just fucking bullshit. It's, it was incredible. Like one of the best podcasts ever. Um, yeah. So he's an absolute legend, but he's never, he's never showed up. The problem is that we've never had, we've always been small enough that we've never, we've never had a lot of money to fly people in. So most of our, most of the people who come to the retreat are based in the US. We mm-hmm. occasionally have people come from Europe, but it's, it's quite rare because, you know, you end up spending a couple of thousand pounds uh, to, to come for the trip yeah. and they have to do that out of their own pocket. So if I could get Malcolm to show up, that'd be amazing. Somebody sponsor me to pay Malcolm to, to come to the US. It'd be worth it. He's fucking yeah. great to listen to. Um, sorry, I meant to ask you this question too. Uh, just on lab testing. Mm-hmm. Um, Biggest bang for book tests to look to look at for just general health and, and wellness markers. Blood, blood yeah. chemistry, is it blood chemistry for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the you know if we're talking about the testing space, I hate that word. The testing. The yeah, week. yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I, I know what uh, you mean. Yeah, yeah, you know the yeah that the the space that's become a the, the fancy word at the moment. Anyway, um, telomeres. Genetic testing and nutrigenomics. 23 and me. 23 and me, most stool testing. Um, it's interesting data, but mo- like we just cannot interpret it. And there's no way that I can tell you what you should do for your health based on that data. Anybody who can, tells you, who can, tell, who can look at your 23 and me data and tell you what you can eat is full of shit. They are lying. It's not mm-hmm. true. Um, so what data can we collect that we know we have a really good idea what it means and we have a really good idea how it will respond to specific lifestyle interventions maybe some supplementation if you have to do that basic blood tests um so we're talking um red blood cells and white blood cells we're talking base so you can do quite a bit with basic lipid markers as long as you're not like hyper focused on ldl which is a calculated number doesn't mean anything anyway um particularly again uh for the lipid numbers they are most predictive for Caucasian populations. That's the, the problem is that it was us white people that did all of the science in the first place, and that's where the science exists. So things like your triglyceride to HDL ratio is really predictive of insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, chronic disease, heart disease, but mainly in Caucasians. So we have a bit of catching up to do in other populations. That's just where we are with the science at the moment. Um, Basic uh, iron markers, um, basic, uh, you know, liver and kidney function. Yeah. You know, there's a huge amount we can do in terms of... Um, Inflammation, C- CRP? Yeah, CRP, um, CRP, very important. Maybe homocysteine if we're thinking about nutritional status. Um, you know, if, if something like that, you probably don't need a lot more. Um, you know, maybe vitamin D is going to be important. If we had a really good way to measure magnesium, that would probably be important. Mm. Um, but it, it's a little, it's a little bit tricky. Um, do, so, do, do you know of any good tests for that? For again, it's because everyone's so individual. Like, what's high, let's say, magnesium for one person could be low in another. Like, but you see some of these like cell spectral analysis saying, oh, you're high or deficient in these, you know, certain uh, vitamins and minerals. And I'm just like, how the fuck can that test decide what's high or low for someone? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe you're talking about you're talking about the spectra cell. Is it? Yeah, is that what it's called? Yeah, spectra cells test where they basically take your white blood cells and then they feed them these different nutrients and then they think that it tells you anything about how deficient you are. No, it's nonsense. Mm. Um, so, I guess there's two there's two sides of this. Um, say for magnesium, and there are a number of different things that, that operate like this. 
just give everybody 300 milligrams of magnesium a day and stop worrying about it, right? Yeah, so we could go and look at, um, so red blood cell magnesium is probably the closest we have. It's not great. Um, however, magnesium citrate is literally dirt cheap and you could just put uh, a, you know, half, a, half a teaspoon in something once a day and then stop worrying about your magnesium status sorry I'm, um, I'm, I'm laughing there because like you know if you were my local doctor and you're like here listen this is just dirt cheap and i'm like Did my doctor just say something was dirt cheap <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's stuff like that um again like um chris masterjohn just did this whole thing on riboflavin um and why right uh, just take five milligrams of riboflavin and stop stop fucking worrying about it like it's, there are all there, there, are, there are all these things where you can really dig down, like test your, st- and it's the same thing with, you could, you could listen to that podcast and get really worried about how you test your riboflavin status. And that's my one main complaint about Chris Masterjohn's de- you know, information. It's so good, but it's so easy to get bogged down in the details yeah. when you could literally just take a ribo- like take a, a multivitamin that has some riboflavin in it and then literally all of your worries disappear. You don't have to worry about even like what the test is. And what, what happens if you take extra riboflavin? You just pee it out. So there are a lot of things where you could just do the, the everybody does the basic thing and 99.9% of us will get what we need to get and then we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. This man, I, I, could, I could go on and ask you a bit more questions about lab testing, but there's a few questions here I want to wrap up on before I, before I uh, let you go and part ways. Uh, tell the listeners about fat fiber and hormy tea for me, please. Yeah, so uh, the, these are the, the, the two supplements that we've made so far. Uh, fat fiber sadly doesn't exist anymore, but there are so many imitators on the market that you can easily find it. Why uh, is that human- just production or? Yeah, because ba- basically for us to produce it at scale, um, we would have to pay for, like, pay for a load of ingredients okay. up front. And because of the the quality of the ingredients we were using is it's like if you want to make a decent batch that then means we can bring down the cost that then means we make any profit we were basically selling it at cost just because it was something that we wanted yeah, for our I get clients you. I get you. um it was like give us three hundred thousand dollars up front for materials and we're like well we just can't afford that so um but uh human makes something similar um various different keto people make something similar so it was it was i, th- I think it was the first um C8, so you know, one of the most um, ketogenic medium chain triglycerides plated onto an indigestible fiber. So it's basically a, an MCT powder that didn't have a load of junk in it because all the other MCT powders had um, some dairy, some emulsifiers, and things that a lot of our a lot of our clients have very sensitive tummies, so they couldn't tolerate that stuff. So that's why we made fat fiber, but it doesn't exist anymore. But you can find something similar now. Um, this was a, this was two or three years ago we started to make it, and then the next thing that I made was something called Hormiti, which Hormiti, which is the um, fucking great name. I don't give a fuck what anyone says. Which is a portmanteau, a fancy word for saying that I squished two words together of hormesis and tea, and is basically um, what plant-based polyphenols activate the the kind of pathways that we think about when we think about exercise and some of these other hormetic stresses that we expose ourselves to. Um, and so it's, uh, start, you know, it's a matcha base. It has some, uh, broccoli seeds in it. And if you boil it at the right temperature, then you activate your, uh, sulforaphane production, which activates NRF2 and all these antioxidant defensive stuff. There was some turmeric in there, some, um, anthocyanins from berries, which are 
you know, really great at uh, inhibiting some of these inflammatory enzymes that get activated um, during sort of chronic disease states. Um, and what else? That was, that was mainly it. Um, and so, so we, we, we started off by making it ourselves, like grinding it up in the kitchen and, and putting it in bots, uh, little pots. But now there's a, there's a tea maker in California who makes it for us. So I think if you go to hormitea.com, you can find it and, and order some. It's, um, it's also, we use it as part of our H. pylori treatment protocol because um, sulforaphane is, can act against H. pylori. So for people who come to us and they have a, an H. pylori infection, part of that is they take some hormitea. Some people love it. Some people say it tastes like dirt, but you know, it's, uh, it, was, it was kind of our first foray into, into that arena. Do, do you find H. pylori in a lot of your patients? Yes, because everybody has H. pylori, um, or the majority, probably, or at least 50%. Um, however, it's not that I want to completely eradicate H. pylori. It's, it's often that it sort of um, grows out of control, let's put it that way. And then it starts to affect you know, acid production, it affects digestion, it's probably a, you know, an, an inflammatory uh, insult, you know, long-term can, can cause ulcers. So in a lot of populations, H. pylori may be a beneficial thing, just like parasitic infections may be a beneficial thing for, for the immune system. So it's not necessarily the case of completely eradicating it. Um, although if you have ulcers, um, yeah, you should try and eradicate it. That, you know, do it with your doctor, take the antibiotics, just get rid of it. Um, but you know, if we're just trying to knock it back in somebody where H. pylori seems to be the, the major um, gastrointestinal problem, then you know there are some some herbs and things that do that. So um, some stuff that gets chewed. So if you think about mastic gum, which is sort of tr chewed traditionally in certain parts of the Mediterranean, that has an anti-H. pylori effect. And again, yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem to kill it, but for those guys, it, it may sort of keep populations under control. Um, yeah, the sulforaphane from cruciferous vegetables has has a similar effect. So it's often not that we want to completely eradicate it, but just sort of like help balance things out, and then hormiti is part of that process. Just when you said you were grinding up the ingredients there, like, like, what were the ingredients? Like, were they leaves or powders or where were you getting that shit? Yeah, so it's all, so basically it was all um, organic powders and extracts that we, that we sourced, um, except for the broccoli seeds. So we got organic broccoli seeds and we ground those up. Um, and they're obviously going to be better if they're fresher. Um, but, you know, in a powder with some of the other stuff in there that, you know, they, they should be fine for a few months. Uh, but then you, you need to grind those seeds up um, and because when the hot water hits them, then you activate the enzymes to make the sulforaphane. Uh, but the rest, the rest we just bought as extracts and powders already. You, you couldn't be dunking biscuits in that like your traditional British tea, could you? You could, if you, you could if you want, but... It wouldn't be as nice. Mr. Potter would, wouldn't approve. Yeah, no, no, Greg. He would not be, he would not be happy if you dunked your chocolate hobnob what into... What the fuck is this? <laughs> Chuck <laughs> it back on you. Yeah, there's a slightly green, green sludgy uh, ring around your biscuit. That's, oh, that sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? You know? Right, right. <laughs> don't worry, we, I won't make that the sound bite, don't worry. Uh, listen, <laughs> my, my listeners are used to hearing all sort of wacky shit in this round. The fucking hosts for their, their, their mats, they're, or they're used to fucking any mats stuff. Um, last few questions for you. Biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life and career? Um... These are a little bit rapid fire rounds. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So quick answer. Um, mo like probably the most important piece of oh, two important pieces of advice that I've received that sort of changed a lot of stuff for me. The first was, um, you imagine me 18 years old, just found out I got all my A's at A levels going to Cambridge. 
pretty full of myself. My dad, who's like top-notch academic professor, turns around and says, remember, this doesn't mean you actually know anything. Um, that was his way of saying congratulations. Um, but super, super important. Like, assuming that you know something is like the first step to just complete ruination and you making a tit of yourself. So don't... Cronin Duger effect. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then the other one... Kruger effect, sorry. Dunning Kruger. Cronin Duger. Dunning Kruger. Dunning Kruger effect. And... Then the other one is be nice to people, right? Just too many people are dicks. And like, there's so much that comes from just like, just being nice to people. And that's you know, made a huge difference in my career. So, and, do, and squat. Don't, don't assume you know anything. Be nice to people and do your squats. Those are the most as, important. As my father it. says, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Absolutely. Um, how do you learn? What's your learning process? Um, I am really lucky that I'm sort of plugged into various groups of people who find interesting stuff, interesting podcasts, interesting papers. This stuff sort of appears in my Slack, maybe a little bit on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I like, I like to read. Um, Mm. I also learn really well by writing. Um, so like writing papers, just writing stuff down. Um, that's my main process. I can also consume a fair amount of content. I hate watching videos because they're a complete fucking waste of time. I'm just like sat there while somebody like drones on at me. So, um, you watch, you watch Brian Walter's stuff though. Uh, yeah, most of it. Uh, but I also have, I have also have Brian on tap. So I'm lucky that I don't have to, Son of a bitch. I, have I a swear question. to God, I sent that man 10 emails. He never replies. I think he hates my guts for some reason. No, he doesn't hate your guts. He just hates emails. Um, so if I have a question, I just, ask. so yes, you're right. I've watched a lot, like almost all of Brian's stuff, but if I have a question, I just ask him and he tells me. So, that's lucky for me. Um, podcast. So podcasts, I'll listen on like double speeds just to like get the information in. Um, and but yeah, if I'm really trying to learn something, then reading and writing it down is is the way I learn best. But it's obviously slow. Yeah, yeah. me personally, it's, it's like it's again all that's all, all of what you mentioned there, but it's it's teaching it to at the end. Ben House said a great thing. He it was on the podcast. With, I think I think it was one of you with Doctor Rosario Savage one. Um, mm. It might have been with Rosario. He, he's done a few other ones. I think he did one with Dr. Bubs as well. It was on one of the ones I have on my podcast there. On my fucking second generation podcast, I got smashed by Dumbbell. You're still living, still alive. Uh, <laughs> but he, he said, like, you got to take something and make it your own. So, like, yeah. like his thing was that, like, you know, learn, digest something. And for him, it's then teaching it. And he said, for, for someone doing a podcast, it could be, like, you know, learn, digest, and then make a podcast about it or whatever. But yeah, first, yeah. first thing what I do is, yeah, I, I read it. I'd watch something about it. I'd listen to something about it. I'd contact someone who's a perceived expert in, in the field. And then I'd make notes. And then I'd t- teach, make a PowerPoint so if I was going to teach it to an audience. And that kind of consolidates the information for me. Uh, this, may, um, this may overlap a little bit with the biggest lessons. But if you had to leave one piece of life advice to the world, what would you say? Yeah, be nice to people. Be safe. It's like... It's, it's, the, it's the same. I, I don't have... It's kind of like the golden rule, you know, do unto others, you'd have others do unto you, basically. Yeah, exactly. And like, people just don't do that. People are dicks and they're self-involved. Um, and actually, it's really easy to do that. And I can't say I'm always... I mean, obviously, I'm not always going to be perfect about that. Same, man. Same, man. It's a continual... Listen, you, every day is, is a new adventure and a learning process uh, along this journey of life. Uh, is there anything you do on a daily basis, Tommy, that's essential to the, to the success of your day? Yeah, making a cup of coffee in the morning. Ah, for fuck's sake, you're one of them. You're one of them. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I do, I do, I do love my coffee. But the other thing 
Um, um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dog convert. I never grew up with dogs. And then I, I inherited a dog when, um, when, I, when I met my girlfriend, now wife. And now we have two dogs. And uh, I often say that having a dog is the, is the best biohack because nice. you get social interaction, you get uh, forced circadian rhythm. They're going to get up when it's light outside and they're going to want to go to bed when it's dark outside. Um, they're going to force you to move. They're going to force you to go out and meet people. Um, they're going to change your gut microbiome. Um, pick up their shit though that's the only thing yeah you kind of so like when the weather's nice outside i'll probably go out and do uh i'll do a round of picking up shit and use right. that as compost like you know what you being at home putting your compost pile great yeah. grow your organic so, vegetables yeah i'm not so i'm not too i'm not too worried about that yeah there's all these other so like that sort of like morning time i let the dogs out go out with the dogs feed them it's kind of like my centering grounding and then make my cup of coffee it's kind of my my process in the morning what is your top book recommendation and what are you currently reading? Um, okay. So I always try and recommend an, um, a fiction book because I, really, I think it's really important to read fiction. Um, my Ooh. favorite fiction book of recent, because we're always like trying to consume this scientific you yeah, know, like yeah. information. 100%, and sometimes, 100% agree. Yeah. Agree with you. Yeah. Okay. So um, I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes is an awesome uh, fiction book probably my favorite the last few years um uh, red sparrow by jason matthews also very good uh the movie not very good um but then uh behave by robert sapolsky is incredible right you should you have to you have to it's, it's an epic tome but you have to read it yeah there we go oh you have a nice like multicolored version uh, um, and look and then cds see all that 180 yeah. pages of notes from his book amazing so if you if you think that your genetics have anything to do with anything in terms of your health, read. I think it's chapter is it chapter eight or chap, chapter six? One of those about in and where it talks about like the COMT and all the different mutations and how it affects your behavior. He's just and like re- yeah, he's it's, like it's gene slash environment. It's, it's gene. all it's all to do with the like the, yeah. gene, the gene matters, but it's all to do with your environment. And you know he, he talks about how him. yeah he talks about how I'm um, having the COMT warrior gene probably makes a it makes a bigger effect thinking that you have it than it does actually having it you know yeah, just yeah. like there's some genius stuff in there so read behave um was was it just books was that the was that the question yeah books your your, your top and current so what are you currently reading oh yeah i'm currently reading uh, unsheltered by barbara kingsolver um nice again it's a fiction book um it's okay i uh, was um the however the book i read by her recently called flight behavior um is awesome. So, Fly Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver, very good fiction book. Last two for you, real quick, right? You've one year left on planet Earth. How would you spend that year and why? Now, you're not dying, you're just leaving Earth in one year, but you're never coming back. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I w- what do I know what's going to happen when I leave? No, you're just, it's Star Trek, baby. You're going out to the stars. You're on, you're okay. on the USS Enterprise with Kirk. God yeah, okay. I would, I would, I would definitely, uh, I would make sure I go and I want to make sure I go and see all of my family. Like that's top. Well, my family is all over the world. Go and see them. Um, maybe I'll do that last. I would definitely want to travel a bit. There's l- large swathes of the world I haven't seen yet, particularly Asia. And I want to eat all of their food. Um, so I'm probably going to get pretty fat in this year because pick up a parasite. Uh, yeah, pick up a parasite. I can do squats on the Starship Enterprise, so I can you know worry about that later. Um, yeah, those are my two main things. Travel, three main things. Travel, eat, and see family. That'd be lethal. Last one for you now. 
and get, and be authentic in the moment. Uh, I'm going over to Seattle again. Haven't been there, but I love it. I, I bring it to Feast Buffet. Oh, Tommy, go to Feast Buffet. It's all you can eat sushi. It's fucking unbelievable. It's in Renton. Okay. Man, it's right. un. It's all Joel James brought me there. I swear to God. You say feast buffet. Feast buffet, unbelievable. I'm googling it right now. They have Tommy. They, I'm not messing. They had this. Oh, sea, yeah, they had this uh, seaweed salad, and it was like crack cocaine. I just kept right. eating it. It was gorgeous. You're Salt. going there. I'm gonna yeah. get this email from you. It's you. You just pay up front, and it's like I'm. But apparently, you can't listen. You're not allowed to bring anything home with you. So, but you could do it. You could do you gotta it. Gotta make it. You gotta make it worth your money while you're oh, there. Oh man, it's it's unbelievable. Like they had Salt. all these salmon and oh my god, it's just <laughs> anyway. I, I, I'm in Seattle, right? This is the last question. I'm in Seattle and I'm taking you and, and your family for dinner. And I say to you, Tommy, you can bring five people to this dinner now. They can be dead or alive. Who are you going to invite? <laughs> who, could, who are you going to invite and why? Um, and as you uh, think about it, as, as you think there, right? Just let me say uh, this to you. Yeah. What happens is people get a little bit freaked out and they go oh my answer has to be profound and i'm just like listen yeah. whatever is in your mind on your mind or in your heart right now just say because i can ask you this question tomorrow and the answer could be different because you you were, yeah you were reading about something different someone else was top of mind just whatever comes to mind right there yeah so one person that i always wanted to meet was john nash um the mathematician um of a beautiful mind fame yeah, yeah. because i really want to see what it's like to be and he died in a taxi ac- in a taxi crash like two years ago he was receiving the, the Eagle prize and he was killed uh, with his ex-wife but they still spent time together um the movie is awesome but that combination of being like completely psychotic and completely brilliant at the same time like just to see that in action i would have i would have found uh, that really apparently cool. though the movie like he 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 never really saw people he heard voices but like he didn't yeah no i mean they they had to they had to dramatize it. That, yeah. but, all right so, but, john, yeah, so john nash that's one you four left uh, four left um i So my family's already. You say taking my family to. So I don't have to say my. They don't count. Members. They don't count. They they're to, right, they, they're they, already they coming. Okay, no. that's that's uh, that's that, that's great. Um, <laughs> you're like you're like your head now. Fuck it, damn it, I need them. Yeah, I have to I have to say. Uh, um, right now, who else? I uh, do you know what? I would love. I I want Doug Wallace there. That's a great one. We were talking about him. Um, I want ken ford to be there because he's one of my favorite most interesting people and i'd love to see him interacting with these other guys um he seems like a lovely guy ken ford yeah yeah he's 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 awesome um i would have obama that's number four nice nice. Um, i'm very interested to have him there um so to tell me about the mitochondria (laughs) (laughs) um and that's a good crew yeah i want one more uh, i'm just gonna have to say richard feynman i, I know that that's like ah, a super cliche no but it's definitely... not no 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 yeah. but i'll tell you what i've never gotten john nash i don't All think right. i've ever gotten doug and uh, i don't know if i've actually had obama too much on it either um who else did you say there as well Feynman, Feynman, but who's and, uh, Ken Ford. Ken Ford, yeah, ne- I never had Ken Ford mention here. That's right. a great listen. Fair play there. I really appreciate you taking the time for that. Listen, <laughs> we, you gotta go. I gotta go. I'll quickly wrap this up and say goodbye to you offline. For the listeners, as I've been saying for all the podcasts over the last little while lately, you are all fucking spoiled rotten. 
getting all this information for free. But uh, no, seriously, thanks for listening to for everyone. And uh, if you can share it around, because yeah, listen, who, who knows who this could benefit? Because this was a savage episode with my man Tommy Wood and great information. Um, so Tommy, listen, just want to say to you, I really appreciate your time. Uh, and um, oh yeah, nerve, nerve, uh, nourish, uh, balance, drive. Just give a quick plug of where people can find out more about you. Yeah, nourishbalancethrive.com. Um, we have a few different things there. The podcast, obviously, we also have a blood chemistry. Thank you. Blood, blood chemistry calculator. We've built a tool to help you better understand your own blood tests um, with Brian Walsh as part of the team. Um, definitely get a practitioner to help you go through it because it's a lot of information. Um, but yeah, that, all of that is on the website. Is Brian going to be near anywhere near you with his tour? Yeah, he's coming to Seattle um, in July, I think. Mm. Uh, it's on his website Fun- I think it's Functional Medicine Family Tour or something I'll, Maybe to again, I'll, I'll put that on the show notes just for anyone who doesn't yeah. know Brian Walsh has torn the whole country with his family in a camper van giving, he's, delivering he's blood also, chemistry course. he's also yeah sorry I talked over you with his no, blood chemistry right. stuff uh, but he's also going to be in London, London in March so yeah. if if your listeners are, are more cl- are closer to you than they are to me then that's the place to go They're fucking psycho that's great when I heard him do it I was like that is just mid- like legendary stuff I don't know how he can do I mean yeah. the, the dude's a machine he uh, is I think he may well fall apart in 10 years time but we will all be the better for it so. absolutely absolutely okay for everyone listening take care be well and stay strong mm-hmm.